and welcome to Talking and Chill, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hi, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis is joining us from Little Rock. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. Good to be back. Do you want to tell us what you've been up to recently, Mimi? Yeah, I birthed a baby. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) And I'm keeping him alive and fed, so that is taking up my time these days. (laughs) (laughs) Mazel tov. That's really exciting. We're so happy for you. And uh, yeah, I'm so... Well, now we're a mom podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Just what we always wanted. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> well, I am so happy to have you back. We really missed you. And let's jump in. Let's do it. So this month, our first topic is The Spy, a new show starring Sasha Baron Cohen on Netflix. And for our second topic, we'll be talking about Psalms or Tehillim. How do we approach this mainstay of women's prayer? All right, so we're going to start with The Spy. Mimi, do you want to get us started? Yeah. Um, So The Spy is a new show starring Sasha Baron Cohen. It's on Netflix, um, directed by Gideon Raff, who was previously the creator of Khatufim. That's the show that was adapted to become Homeland. The Spy tells the story of Ellie Cohen, an Egyptian-Israeli spy in Syria. Cohen was caught and executed in 1965. So I'm curious, I think we all watched at least two, maybe more episodes. Um, What did you guys think? I'm four episodes in out of the six that are part of this miniseries. I would say so far so good, not blowing me away, but good. Um, It's engaging. Sasha Baron Cohen is also good, not great. I think people are raving about his performance in part because it's so unexpected as somebody who has never watched a preview for any other Sasha Baron Cohen product and thought I should go anywhere near that, <laughs> maybe I'm just not experiencing the contrast the way some people are, but I'm thinking like, okay, this is like a a good understated-ish uh, performance of a, I think, not terribly difficult role, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, the story is a compelling story. I knew the one sentence summary about Ellie Cohen before, which is like, there was a guy who in the early 60s was an Israeli spy in Syria. And that was a really risky thing to do. And he gave lots of important information to Israel. And then he was caught. This is a cool dramatization. It's also cool to see something that's about Israel not be like a niche Jewish thing, but like a genuine, you know, prestige TV drama. Um, And... I also appreciate that it seems like pretty much everyone cast in this show is an actual Arab or actual Israeli, or at least if they are not an Israeli Jew, they are a Jew. Um, So it's, it's interesting to see that. And especially for the, the um, Syrian characters that it seems like they're almost all played by Arab actors. I expected to like this because I'm interested in Ellie Cohen. Like, I didn't know that much about him, but I also knew, like, he was, like, an incredible spy and he really, like, did an amazing job and then, like, got caught and his body was has never been returned to his family. He was publicly hanged. That's, like, what I know, basically. And that seems like a good story, but I didn't find this super compelling like I definitely I'm not sure that I found Sasha Baron Cohen even 
good, not great, like, okay. Um, yeah, I, like, he seems to be at least, like, two and a half episodes in, not that good of a spy. (laughs) And so maybe that's why I'm, like, not really enjoying it. Because on the one hand, it's like, well, maybe he was not that good of a spy in that, like, he did get caught. Um, and maybe, like, they are making a point. But on the other hand, people also, like, are telling him, like, you were born to do that. Like, people compliment him sometimes in a way that I'm like, he doesn't seem that good. <laughs> um, I don't know. And and I also, I know that this is, like, very much not the point of, like, a spy movie. But, like, when you realize that he's, like, leaving his wife for, like, an incredible incredibly long periods of time and lying to her and I don't know that feels crappy also and it's like I don't know I just didn't find myself being like really into him um so that was like one part is like I assumed that I would be like super compelled by it and I found myself kind of not super compelled and in fact like kind of conflicted about him as a character and then I felt like Basically, all of the acting is, like, not that good. And (laughs) I am sorry that I am always Tamar Fox accent cop, but I just, like, cannot with the, like, non-Israelis doing Israeli accents or, like, I mean, I just find the inconsistency very jarring as someone who, like, when you're in Israel, you hear different accents, but, like, everyone's accent airs in a direction and this is just like it's weird that they're all speaking in English to each other with a he like with a fake Hebrew accent like I just something about that just like really yanked me out of it and his handler in particular is the person who's making like the least of an attempt at an Israeli accent but he doesn't just not attempt it he like just does a very lame job (laughs) And an Israeli accent, which I just found very disconcerting. Right. We should say the handler is Noah Emmerich, um, who is one of the few American actors, I think, in the show and who plays uh, FBI agent Stan Beeman in The American. So this is in his intelligence wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the whole, I was totally fine with most of the Israeli accents on the show, but his was truly terrible his is so bad it does take you out of it i i have to say i'm i'm with you tomorrow i think even though some of these people are israelis i i just don't like their accents when they're speaking english um and i think that well because they've probably been coached to speak english without an accent so they're like right having to unlearn that right the other netflix show that i've been watching is when heroes fly um, in which it's also an Israeli show in which they speak to one another in Hebrew. And then when they're encountering people who don't speak Hebrew, they'll speak English without that cheesy Israeli accent. Um, so anyway, I think there are ways to do it better. But I do want to say, so I'm to about two, almost three episodes in. Um, I also don't feel super compelled by the characters or sold on the acting. Um, But 
one thing that I guess there there are merits to the show that have nothing to do with the experience of watching the show. And that's interesting to me. So Zahava, you mentioned, you know, it's it's nice to see um a show like this that is in just like common prestige TV. It's not a Jewish niche show. Um, I also appreciate that it's giving some complexity to what it means to be um, an, a Jewish person from an Arab country. Um, so often in a spy show, you'll see like, oh, the bad guys are the Russians or the bad guys are the Arabs. And here we're like, no, there are Arabs on both sides of this um, narrative. Um, And even Ellie Cohen or Sasha Baron Cohen talks about um, feeling like an immigrant in Israel, though he's Jewish, he's seen as what he, he basically says, what the white Jews see him as is an Arab first. And then, yes, also a Jew. To be fair, he actually was an immigrant. Right, right. He is an right. I mean, they all are in But 65, so was everybody right. in Israel at that um, point, basically. Right. But, you know, I, I think that some of the racial politics are an interesting... That's interesting to me. I'm not sure it's enough to keep me watching this show because I don't care enough about the spy narrative. And often I like spy shows. I loved The Americans. So I don't know if I'll keep watching this one. So I think I'm enjoying it more than either of you two, but I will say that, you know, when tomorrow you say that he doesn't seem like that great a spy, or maybe you're saying that the spy stuff doesn't seem that compelling, I think one of the faults of the show is that they don't do a good job of conveying that it's hard. Like, I think they do a good job of conveying that it's dangerous. Like, if he gets caught, the stakes are very high, but it is, on the whole, like, it just doesn't seem that hard for him to sneak in where he needs to sneak in or befriend whom he needs to befriend. And you get the sense that like, yeah, he was he was gifted at doing at like making those connections and looking like he blends in in a space or whatever it is. But it just doesn't maybe I've been spoiled by like, I don't know, however many seasons of Alias and things like that, where it's like spycraft involves all these disguises and running and you're always fleeing somebody and there's you know secret recording devices hidden in your shoes or whatever but like this doesn't make the spying seem as hard as I'm sure it actually was and so maybe just grading on the wrong curve perhaps um also you know tomorrow you mentioned feeling like you know a little icky about how Poorly, the the noble thing that he's doing leaves leaves his wife and his family, um, and he manages to right. father two children along the way, like on furloughs that he's basically just never there to see or meet, um, and that does feel icky. And the reason it feels icky is because the show dwells on it. You spend a lot of time with his wife, who's played, I think, very well by, I think her name is Hazara Son Rotem. She's really interesting, and you get the sense that she's not being given enough to do, given her obvious acting talent, because she seems to be there to make you feel this thing, make you feel the human cost of the spying, rather than 
getting that much of a narrative in her own right. So like if we're going to spend time with her, then I, I would like for her to be more developed. Or if you're going to have a spy show be about the spy, I respect that. We don't need to spend that much time in Batyam, but like yeah. we do. And so I wanted there to be more of it. Um, I'm interested in some of the visuals in the show. Um, one of the reviews I read, I think it may have been the Rolling Stone review, pointed out that the... Um, the landscape in Syria is portrayed in very saturated color, whereas the Israeli landscape is in this very like bleached yes. out, like washed out, almost black and white, um, but not black and white, just like very pale uh, coloration, um, which is an interesting contrast. There's also some interesting things done with text in the show. Um, so if he's reading, um, if he's reading something or if he's sending Morse code or, um, you know, th those those words appear on the screen in interesting integrated ways. So there's a moment in episode four where he's reading a list of names. And as right. he skims his eyes down them, they appear on the screen. But some of them are blocked by his body. Like you have a sense of them in th in the three dimensional space of the world of the show. Um, sometimes where it tells you where you are. So there's a moment where you're with his wife and she's home in Batyam in Israel. And the words Batyam sort of appear as part of the brick on the side of the staircase that she's walking up rather than floating on the screen. They, it feels almost integrated into the world where they are. And there's a really interesting moment where he's in Damascus walking past a poster um, where you have a cartoon like sort of a caricatured face with a finger to their lips, like a shh gesture. And there's writing in Arabic. And as you walk past it, just like two blinks of an eye, it flashes into English. It sort of subtitles itself. It says, you know, it says, it says something like, keep quiet, the enemy is listening. And then it goes back to Arabic. And so I think that visually there's some interesting cues happening with you know, placing you wow. in a foreign place without making you feel like you're constantly reading subtitles. True. To the point where sometimes I'm, I didn't catch like the the markers that say where you are. They're they're not trying to to hit you over the head with you know where you are or the words for Batyam will be in white text and you can't even really see it initially. It just looks like a cloud or you know something that you're not supposed to see. Um, except for a, a brief second. I don't know what to make of that, though. I mean, it seems like high production value, and yet the acting doesn't feel good. So th that just leaves me feeling like Netflix put a lot of money into this show that I still don't think is good. <laughs> it felt like it's, it's a visually beautiful show. I just, like, I didn't feel like it really earned excitement. The other thing is, like, it does the one of the things that I find really irritating, which is like it starts at the end and then like flashes back to the beginning, which is like, I mean, I guess maybe they felt like they had to do that because some pe a lot of people know the story, but like how many people really know this story that are like watching Netflix? Like I feel like it could have been a reveal at the end. It's weird to have it like hanging over the beginning that he's going to be executed and tortured um, yeah. tortured yeah. yeah that seems to me to be the zahava you mentioned they don't make it seem like the spy work is that hard to me the suspense comes not from you know 
each act of spying that he does, but rather, when is he going to get caught? Because I know that's what's going to happen. Which, again, makes it seem like he... It's hard to have that be the focus. When is he going to mess up? When is he going to get caught? Without the other side of that is, when is he going to mess up? So it kind of, like... It's weird to have the show both being, like, he was this incredible master spy and he got caught. Like, both of those things. I mean, I believe that they actually both can be true. Right. Like, there are things that are right. out of your control and whatever. But, like, that is not what spy movies have taught us to believe. So, it's, um, I don't know. It makes the whole thing, it kind of drains it a little bit for me. Have you guys heard this show talked about in Jewish circles? I haven't. Not right much now. yet. I, I haven't either. It is brand new. It's been out for less than two weeks as we record right. this. I'm curious. I, I, you know, on the one hand, it's nice that it's not in that niche Jewish television world. On the other hand, I don't feel like there's really anything Jewish about this show. I, and it doesn't, I don't know. I've seen a lot of people talking about Stiesel, like in shuls, but... I don't think this show is going to break through to be a topic of conversation. It doesn't make you feel like, I think the reason that a lot of people are really, um, find Stiesel to be so exciting is because it makes you feel like you have access to this world that you otherwise would not have access to. And even though this is a spy show, it somehow doesn't make you feel that way. <laughs> like it doesn't give you this like access to this world that you didn't otherwise have. And I also think that like this show doesn't really like part of the problem with it is like it's obviously like situations in like Israeli Palestinian and Israeli Arab like political dramas could be easily very fraught and it's like okay Ellie Cohen was clearly a good spy who was clearly executed by the Syrians publicly and also his spying seems to have like enabled in some way enabled Israel to win the six-day war so that makes him like pretty uncontroversial like there's probably not a lot of people who are like anti-Ellie Cohen and are not just, like, openly anti-Semites, right. right? Like, it's a pretty... There's not a lot of nuance in this story. Like, it's a, it's a very clear, like, good guy versus bad guy kind of thing. And I think... I don't know. I just don't have that much of an appetite for a, like, story about Israel that's, like, not even really trying to be nuanced. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, I'm just like... <laughs> that seems... We're missing, like, really? That's what we're going to do now? It's embarrassing. It's nuanced about things other than Israel's relationship with its right. enemies. Meaning, I think that in the in the last, I don't know, 30 years, the focus has been on, um, on Israel and the Palestinians, um, where you're talking about a more or less stateless people and the sort of conflicting notion of are we dealing with an enemy nation or a minority population that Israel is, you know, bound to protect and respect? And the answer is always both, which makes it impossible to talk about in any coherent way 
with almost anyone. Um, this is about two different countries with a heavily guarded border on both sides, both of whom are shooting at each other. And that is like, I don't think that that fact is like crying out for more right. nuance. Um, and like you said, right, this is. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think that there needs to be a lot of nuance on this story. It's just, this is like very much like my reflection on my like, day school education about Israel but it's like I feel a little bit sugar shocked from all of the like rah-rah Israel underdog stories that I have been fed in my life and like I personally am just not looking for more of those not because you know whatever I love Israel but also like I just am looking for more nuanced stories now because I can see that things are complicated and I feel like this story is it's not that like it needed to have more nuance. It's just that it's not the kind of story that I find really compelling right now because there isn't that much nuance to add to it. I mean, I think that like sometimes it's a relief to have a story about Israel that is not also about the Palestinians because Israel is not entirely top to bottom about Palestinians. And oh, so totally sometimes agree. it's nice to to think about something else. I think that the nuance comes from what Mimi referred to before, which is Ellie Cohen's role as um, a Mizrahi Jew, right, a, a Jew of Arab descent in Israel, and whether that makes him a bit of a second-class citizen in the Jewish population versus the sudden prestige and respect that he has as a fake rich person, fake rich Syrian on the other side of the border. And you know, by analogy, it might be like a story that follows an African-American soldier fighting for the U.S. in World War II, right? They're like fighting an incontrovertibly important thing, but like they're wearing the uniform of a country that's mistreating them. What does that mean? Um, I think that in a way, that's the role that the time that we spend with Ellie's wife back in Israel is playing. It's reminding us of his second classness so that we don't get lost in the flash of his um, of his cover story. There could be more exploration there. Um, Mimi, in our pre-show discussions, you had shared with us a piece in Hey Alma called Netflix's The Spy is the first time I've seen my Sephardi culture on screen by Linda Malay, talking from the perspective of a Mizrahi Jew for whom Eli Cohen is like a community legend um, and not just a, a national figure. Mm -hmm. And how how that story is represented is interesting. Though, of course, Sasha, Bar Sasha Baron Cohen is himself Ashkenazi, so I suppose there's some uh, irony there. But it is like, th there's other nuance here, maybe underexplored. I feel like we've plumbed the depths of the show. Does that make, I, I, I'm just not, sh there, there doesn't feel like there's anything there for me. But may maybe I'll keep watching just to wait until, see how he gets caught. Six episodes is a fairly low commitment. Yes. Um, I do think that the stakes get higher. I mean, I'm in, I've finished episode four. I think the stakes get a little bit higher as he's more embedded in his cover and able to do higher stakes things. Um, episode four is probably the most interesting of the four that I've watched for what that's worth. But I can understand not being super excited by this. I am interested by all of the rapture that I'm seeing online about Sasha Baron Cohen's performance. Um, there's a lot of Twitter and a lot of the reviews are, are like, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, breakthrough dramatic role. And 
I mean, proving that you can be someone other than Borat, I, I think is a valuable thing in your career. And his shtick is probably wearing a little thin these days. Right. So it's good to move in a new direction. But because, like I said, the spycraft just doesn't look that hard. And because his cover is as like a rich businessman and not like, you know, he's not like kickboxing his way to victory. Like, you know, this is a mission impossible. Mm -hmm. But there is a like totally cliched like montage of him working out. (laughs) Yeah, the training montage. Totally. I'm with you on that. The whole first episode honestly felt like so much exposition, so much table setting, and just there's one scene where like some Israelis are getting bombed and it's shot in this like super melodramatic way and it's like it's bombing like you don't need to we get that it's dramatic like like you don't need to like put it in slow motion as we watch the like grains of sand fly like I I don't know I found that to be too much um yeah I would say like if you make it through the first episode it gets I found it to be much easier to watch the second episode. And I'm like, I'm interested in where they go with it. I'm just like, I want it to be better. One thing that I will say in terms of moral nuance and interest is that I think that in the spirit of what I said before, that these are two different countries with like a border between them and the border is being fought over, that there isn't, I think, a strong sense that like, the people over there are evil animals or, you know, once you're with him in Syria, there's a sense that really this is like a fight between opposing teams and you might find yourself on one team or the other by happenstance of birth. And his cover story supports that, right? He's supposed to be um, Argentinian born of a Syrian father and growing up on Syrian stories. And he is like a second generation Syrian patriot returning home sort of by happenstance of his birth. Um, and there's a scene, I think it's at the beginning of scene of episode three, where there's a rally in the streets in Damascus that they're celebrating what they've heard on the radio is a Syrian victory in which they've massacred a bunch of Israeli troops. And you watch Ellie Cohen be sort of like sick in this crowd and trying to hide it. And then he finds out from a friend with military connections that actually this is like Syrian propaganda and it's the Israelis that have massacred a whole bunch of Syrian troops. And you have the sense that this is about your allegiances. It's not necessarily about like the moral high ground. You don't, you don't find anything out really about like the history of um, what's been going on at that border before, who owns what land and for what reason. Um, and, I, I, yeah, it, it, in that sense, it's sort of, I don't know if that's more interesting because it's not clearly taking the side or less interesting because the moral question is just sort of like inert. It's just sort of left there like, eh, we're not interested in that. But it makes it more of a spy war thriller and not a political drama in that sense. All right. Well, it seems like we're giving this a pretty solid, mm, so... If you find that compelling, definitely check it out. I would say you can wait until you don't have anything else that you feel like you need to watch immediately. 
so for our second segment, we're going to be discussing Psalms, Tehillim, or as I will call them throughout this segment, Tehillim, because I cannot muster the emphasis on the last <laughs> syllable on a consistent basis. So we are recording this episode in the month of Elul, the last month of the Jewish calendar leading into the high holidays. And um, during this time, there's an extra chapter of Tehillim, uh, chapter 27, that's appended to the end of morning and nighttime prayers. Um, and this is just also just generally like a introspective kind of prayer season. And in that sense, it seemed appropriate to discuss Tehillim and whether we have any personal relationship to it, because it is the biblical text, the book of Tanakh, that is the core personal prayer book. Um, people call upon Tehillim in times of need, pain, fear, um, and it's, you know, reciting chapters of Tehillim tends to be treated as like a, a go-to prayer experience for, for Jews in trouble. Um, so I personally have never been much of a Tehillim person. Like I don't, when I'm having a tough time, it's not my go-to. Um, but that is the case for a lot of people. And I think that a, a lot of people have very personal relationships with this with this book of Tanakh. Do you guys have any history with it or any personal feelings about Tehillim that, you know, based on uh, your experiences? So I have like two Tehillim stories. The first one is that um, my mom died in the month of Elul. And so I, and so after my mom died, I was in shul a lot, saying Kaddish, and I was constantly hearing this line in Psalm 27, Ki avi ve'imi azavuni v'adonai yasfeni. And it's like, that is a really intense, so the English translation is, though my father and mother abandoned me, the Lord will take me in. And I just like found it to be kind of a punch in the gut every time obviously my mother did not abandon me and my father is still living thank god but like something about this idea of like your pa parents abandoning you really like felt very and still feels like very intense and emotional to me and it makes it difficult for me to like connect <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like it's kind of a trigger which just makes it so that like everything else in it just kind of doesn't register. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I feel like that line, I, I have like a lot to unpack there for myself, for myself, but I don't, um, I don't like connect with the larger Psalm and it doesn't, nor does it feel like I associate it with the high holidays because we say it around the high holidays, but it's not like the text makes me think like judgment. Um, and the other thing I'll say is that like, I really struggle in general to connect with the songs because there's no narrative in them. And I'm just like such a story person that just like many verses about how much I love God, like doesn't really, I can't get into it. Um, yeah. So I, I struggle with Psalms in general. I, um, I also struggle with Psalms. I think maybe for some similar reasons. Um, when my dad was sick, 
I knew that there was a tradition of reading Psalms um, as a way of sort of praying for the sick person. And the thing that is hard for me about Psalms is that they're poems, right? There are a lot of images, a lot of analogies. um, And yet, in the course of a single psalm, there are many different images. Um, Somebody had told me that Psalm 102 is one that you often say when somebody is sick. Um, And there are these images of, I am like a withered blade of grass. Um, A lot of ashes and dust um, connotations. And if those don't speak to you poetically or given the situation that you are, the particular situation that you're praying for, it feels like a really weird poem to be saying on a daily basis. Whereas, you know, I felt like I could find a poem that maybe better spoke to the particular situation that I was praying for. So if I think of it as a poem, I find the, if the images don't align with what I'm going for, then then that doesn't really speak to me. But if you think of it as a prayer, one of the things that's nice about the Psalms is that they're often in first person and so many prayers are not. Um, And so there are lines about, you know, in certain Psalms about calling out, about, you know, asking God to answer your prayers. And those pieces, that that first person um, I found really helpful. Um, So I guess often what I was doing um, was thinking more about the the power of the psalm and the words of the psalms that were about answering prayers and less about some of the analogies and images. That was my personal experience with psalms. I have a good friend who has a family member who, you know, is very sick and we are all thinking of him. Um, and I find that reading the psalms for him is a really beautiful way of focusing my energy there, um, even if I don't like the particular images of the psalm. I'm with you on not finding the imagery that powerful. Um, I mean, I think that's true in a lot of Jewish texts, though. I feel that with other books of Tanakh, I also feel like, I don't know, biblical commentaries that are like, let me give you a parable to illustrate this. I'm usually like, eh, I don't really care what the king's son is doing. And, you know, yes. I, I think that in general, like things that are meant to be vivid and evocative need to speak to the time that you're in. And it's very hard to keep those relevant over the span of like hundreds and thousands of years. Um, and yeah, I think that what's powerful about Tehillim is the first person singular because, like you said, a lot of our prayers are in first right. person plural. Like you're playing, you're praying as a member of a nation in some way, and I think that that's part of why Tehillim is something that people call on in like moments of personal crisis, um, because it feels applicable. Like almost none of our texts would, um, and also, like you said, when you're trying to pray with people, not necessarily physically in the same space, but like in solidarity with. 
that there's something powerful about it being a common text, but one that isn't specific to like morning prayers or a particular occasion that we can all just be like, can everybody say this? Um, And so it feels like it's available to you in that way. But the thing that's very funny to me, given the personal language and the like moments of crisis sense of things, is how ritualized Tehillim is in a lot of ways. So, um, for instance, there are a lot of people, um, I've been to one of these once or twice, that go to like Tehillim groups on a weekly basis where, okay, we all have a list of let's say people, sick people to pray for. And like, now let's split up the book. So everybody like grab a booklet that includes seven chapters and we'll split it up and say the entire biblical book of Psalms together just to make sure we've covered it. Or after morning prayers in my high school, everybody had an assigned Psalm. Mine was chapter 39. Um, that like everybody said at the end of morning davening and then as a school, we all went over the entire book of Tehillim twice. Um, the sense, the sense that this is something that could be ritualized or like systematized, feels almost at odds with the thing itself. It's funny because I have been a part of like I haven't gone to a Tehillim group, but I've definitely like signed up to say Tehillim for somebody, and I, in fact, when. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was diagnosed with cancer and then more recently when she had another cancer scare or whatever it was um I like set up a spreadsheet for people to say to healing for Ruth Bader Ginsburg which is like a relatively weird thing for me to do since that is like extremely not how I usually Hmm. address such things but I feel like in our um when we talked about Jewish superstitions a couple years ago like I was like, well, I feel like I do things when I'm like, well, there's nothing else for me to do. Like, I can't, I I have no control here. So I'd like to do something that makes me feel like I am helping or whatever, or not hurting. And that is like, totally how I feel about this. It's like, I actually have zero control over Ruth Bader Ginsburg's health. And, um, but I like, want to do something that in some way, like, could conceivably help and like tailing is basically like what i what i feel like i can do it's also just a jewish way of channeling it's like this is a jewish response to fear or a jewish response to tragedy or to illness and it's like i want to do the jewish thing in this situation when i'm at a loss to me it's like i'm sad that it's tahilim though because first of all like sometimes they're the message of them is so at odds for like in, with like praying for healing. Like I always sign up for chapter 150, the last chapter, and it's like about you go to like praying yeah. to God using drums and trumpets and cymbals <laughs> and a shofar, and it's like this hasn't like this doesn't feel like I'm like asking God like please keep Ruth mm-hmm. Bader Ginsburg alive. Like it's just like a weird. <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with the actual like request. Um, and so that, that part is a little weird to me. Um, and I like wish there was more of a, like, read this chapter of a story of someone miraculously being healed. (laughs) You know, it's like, why are we not reading the story of like Alicia and the, and the child who gets revived? Like that seems like a more appropriate, like, let's pick pray for a miracle for a health miracle 
than what we often end up doing. Um, but I don't make the rules. I just follow them and say to Haley and Furby's Bader Ginsburg. You're such a rule follower to <laughs> Said no one ever. You know, as somebody whose Hebrew is not very good, I think this is one of those instances where um, it's just really helpful <laughs> not to read the translation. Um, and if it, it helps me to think about the action and the focus and all of the people joining together to do this one thing, um, not to get too caught up, though I, though I still do, obviously, as I told you in my experience with my dad, but not to get too caught up in what the words actually mean. Because there is some sort of magical thinking about, oh, if we can complete the book of Tehillim, then we've accomplished something for this person. Um, and yeah, in order to do that, I have to put the meaning aside which for me is not that hard to do because some of those words, I don't know. I mean, maybe that reminds me of, I feel like there's been a trend in the last few years where suddenly like making challah and doing hafrashat challah. So if you make enough bread, then there's like a procedure that you need to do with the blessing to set aside part of the dough. And like to do that in the merit of someone who needs healing for various things and I feel like there's been a trend in the last few years like, oh, we need to get 40 people together to take challah for this person. And um, it always seems like, do, do we? Like, wh where did that come from? What is that? What's the magic of the 40th person that suddenly turns this into a productive act? I remember um, discussing this with a teacher of mine who said, yeah, you know, I once saw one of these summonses and I was like, well, gee, I wasn't planning on making challah this week, but I totally could if I just set aside time on Thursday. And then she's like, wait, I think I can just pray for this person. I think that's how my religion works. <laughs> and in that sense, Tamara, I think to me, that's why reading the chapter of Kings where Alicia heals the boy doesn't feel like a more appropriate response to me because it's not a prayer. I think Tehillim isn't just like reading scripture in that way. It's like you are turning this thing into your own prayer. Mm. Um, and that I think the expectation is that if you get into it, that because it's so personal and because it's such an emotional statement on the part of the writer, that it might in some way be an emotional or transformative kind of prayer experience for you in the way that prayer is ideally supposed to be. That seems like a stretch, though, because I think a lot of people that are doing this are not having that experience. Right. And I, I'm just remembering. So when I was in sleepaway camp as a like tween or whatever, I remember studying something in like afternoon cheer about Tehillim and me saying in my like flippant like too cool for school kind of way that like I didn't really like the style of the poetry in Tehillim like it just like wasn't my kind of writing and the teacher being like maybe we should be a little bit more respectful about how we talk about the writing of King David you know <laughs> sick burn um. yeah <laughs> I, I, I often don't find it that relatable but on the other hand the actual like prayer book that we have includes a lot of Tehillim. I think, right. you know, if you've never like studied Tehillim or like read it through as a separate book and then you 
do one day, you'll realize, oh, I know this one and that one and this line over here because we draw on it constantly for our actual like regular prayers because it's just like the go-to text for this sort of thing. I did want to um, just mention a book that I have not read, um, but um, that my mom is really enjoying about Psalm 27 and this um, it's by Rabbi Deborah Robbins. Um, I'm pretty sure she's in the reform movement and she tries to use Psalm 27 as a meditation for the month of Elul. Um, I mean, it, it, it is, sorry. <laughs> Psalm 27 is a meditation for the month of Elul, but she just tries to draw some things out. And um, the book is called Opening Your Heart with Psalm 27, a spiritual practice for the Jewish New Year. I think that there are ways, you know, I'm sure there are books out there about the spiritual practice of praying for healing that use the Psalms and allow people to dive into the imagery and create some of their own um, associations. Um, and that's, it's great to have that text, right? It's, it's wonderful to have these poems at our fingertips for these moments of distress or for introspection that come up at a, on a yearly basis. Can we talk about the women aspect of this? Because I don't know if this is just my anecdotal experience, but it does seem to me that like Dehillim is is kind of a women's prayer book in a lot of communities and especially in in right wing Orthodox communities that it's like there are women who carry around uh, a book of Dehillim to just like say during downtime or um, that like women who never go to or very rarely go to like shul for public prayer uh, will attend to Hillam groups and things like that. Um, I, and it's sort of an interesting phenomenon. Have, have you guys seen this too, or is it just me? I totally think of saying to Helium as like a woman thing. I think maybe like that might be part of why I feel like I don't connect to it because it feels like a kind of second class davening. It's like, well, you're not going to like actual services. You're not like you're you're saying this other thing, which like whatever. There's a lot to unpack there about how I feel about davening, <laughs> which we've <laughs> discussed before, and I'm sure will come up again. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, there's no real like actual thing to say that it's like saying psalms is any less serious than saying like the traditional Jewish liturgy. But to me, um. You know, it's not fixed to a time, so you could do it whenever. And if you have, like, one or two or many children, you can, like, fit it in whenever. I, like, (laughs) I have found that I, like, know a lot of psalms by heart, and so I can just, like, rattle them off when I'm, like, walking to the grocery store and pushing a stroller or whatever, which is nice, but not, like... I mean, I guess it's, like, a question of, like, what is the function of prayer? I feel like psalms are often, like, it's seen as almost, like, a currency in terms of, like, getting something, right? You're, like, praying Mm -hmm. for someone's healing or for someone to get married or for some, you know, for money or whatever it is you're praying for. It's, like, towards a specific thing. Um, And the, like, liturgy is more like the liturgy is the liturgy and you can approach it for whatever, with whatever like requests you want. But like the liturgy 
is kind of independent of that. It has its own requests inherent in it. Um, I don't know. That's not that good of an explanation of why I feel like they're really different. But um, I think it is the truth of why I kind of am like, ugh, that doesn't Um. feel serious to me. Internalized misogyny, it's a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how do do you feel, Zahava, knowing that this is more that this seems to be the women's prayer space. I don't know whether it's, I think part of it is, is because women are in the communities where this is more of a thing. Women are less expected to come to shul, right? Like the, the constant accessibility of it, like Tamara was saying, um, there might also be something to the fact that it's like the emotional book of Tanakh. Right. right? Um, and, and that as, uh, stereotype maybe um but it's also much more direct in what it says about people and god and theology and how jews interact with the world and with each other and you know tomorrow you were saying you're like such a story person um and that you really latch on to narrative but to him is like the really rare book that's just saying like hey I am a person who needs God in this moment, or I'm going to describe God in this praise way, or I'm going to talk about my fear about this situation, or, you know, like a Psalm of David when he was running away from such and such king, multiple kings, um, depending on the chapter. Um, So in that sense, it's like you're not trying to like do literary analysis on a third person narrative. It's really just the thing you're experiencing if you relate to it. Um, I don't know if that's, that feels more accessible in a lot of ways than narrative. Um, And I don't know if that makes it like dumbed down in a way that maybe it, it does feel a little bit like relegated to the women, but like it's not an exercise in learning. Um, But I... Yeah, I mean, I've I've never been part of a Tehillim group on a regular basis, though I have done signups and things like that. Um, but it is in communities where women's Torah study is not that valued, the fact that there's a book of Tanakh that is like especially for them doesn't seem to be like a terrible thing. That's fair. Yeah. What about you, Mimi? What do you think about it? Yeah, I guess when Zahava first floated this topic idea, I was, the image that came to mind was like being on a bus in Israel and seeing like young women going to school, carrying like a little, what looks like a sidur and reading on the bus and then seeing the cover and seeing, oh, it was Tehillim. Like they're just like, reading to him and clearly like back and forth like reading this book over and over and over again um and I always thought that was strange that there would be like a separate book that that these young women were reading not that it wasn't accessible or available to men but that it was sort of prescribed for women um and Sometimes it's great to have single sex spaces. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I I see, I feel 
some discomfort and I see the draw as well. I think, I, I mean, I wonder what it would look like to to have um, a more egalitarian Tehillim group and how that might change things or whether that's even something that I want. Um, I like having women's prayer spaces, but because I feel like everything is open to me prayer-wise and study-wise, I'm not sure Tehillim is what I would choose as the text for that space. Well, I hope you guys have a good Elul um, as we wind down towards the high holidays, even if Psalm 27 is uh, is not the pathway you take there. Agreed. I do kind of want to go to a Tehillim group now and just see what that feels like. If you know of one in Philadelphia, be in touch. <laughs> I'm sure there is. All right, let's do some endorsements. Mimi, what do you want to endorse? So, um, as we mentioned in the top of the show, I have been spending um, about a month and a half keeping a small human alive, and that involves a lot of middle of the night wake ups. So, I wanted some of these are peripherally Jewish, but these are the pieces of culture that are helping me get through these early mornings slash late nights. I am loving the Netflix, no, not Netflix, the show um, Schitt's Creek, which takes place in Canada, um, where Zahava currently is, but it just it's a fabulous show. The family featured in the show is Jewish, and they're passing references to Judaism. Um, another show that I really liked is When Heroes Fly, which I mentioned is available on Netflix. It's um, about four friends from the Israeli army who, um, you know, in their past have some trauma that they explore when they rejoin for a shared mission that takes place in Colombia. Um, and then the last thing that I read last night and really brought me to tears, um, surprisingly, was um, uh, the text of Elizabeth Warren's speech um, on the anniversary of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Um, and I don't know, I thought that it's a story that I think as Jewish women and, and just as Jews, we know about the story of this fire. And hearing her retell it in the political context that we're in now, um, I don't know, it was very moving to me. So I want to endorse those three things. And the last piece that I want to endorse is... Um, just an artist who I'm really loving right now. Her name is Jessica Tamar Deutsch, I think is how you pronounce her last name. Um, she's a Jewish illustrator. And if you follow her Instagram account, she's posting these daily slichot, daily like, I'm sorry statements, um, which are really beautifully done. And yeah, I just am loving her work right now. She does a great Pirkei Avot, illustrated Pirkei Avot that I love. Yes, I've been meaning to buy that. Cool. All right, Mimi has to run, so Zahava and I are going to endorse without her. Bye, Mimi. Bye. See you soon. Bye, Mimi. Um, All right, Zahava, what do you have to endorse? So I was thinking about Tehillim and what my, like, go-to chapter might be. Um, And like I said, this isn't something I do very often, but... In um, a recent-ish 
time of uh, like personal stress, I did wind up not reading but singing uh, chapter Kufchaf Aleph 121, um, which is um, the, um, I lift my eyes to the mountains and where will my help come from chapter. Um, and the version that I was singing is the tune by Yosef Karduner, who's an Israeli music artist. I happen to really love the tune. I find the music very moving and uh, feels very fitting for the text. So um, we will share a link to the song in show notes if you want to check out that recording. Um, and sort of modestly related is... Um, one of the verses in that chapter is um, talking about the constancy, right? The during the day, the, the sun doesn't fade and the moon by night. And it happens to be that I recently read The Moon by Night, which is um, the second book in the Austin Family Chronicles, a series of young adult books by Madeline Langle, um, writer of A Wrinkle in Time, more famously. So... I don't know if you've ever read the Austin Family Chronicles. If you have, it's probably been years. Um, yeah, I actually chose to go on my honeymoon to Greece because of the Austin Family Chronicles, I believe. <laughs> because Really? Yeah, House Like a Lotus, which is, I think, in that series. Um, uh, part of it takes place in Greece, and it sounded amazing. And, yeah. Well, I... Over the last few months, like here and there, I've been revisiting this books because these books because when I was in seventh grade, my favorite book was A Ring of Endless Light, which is one of the books in the Austin Family Chronicles. And I did not know in seventh grade that it was the fourth book in a series, and I had never read the first few. Hmm. And so I recently realized that and decided to go back and read the first few, The Moon by Night being the second one, and I'm really enjoying them. And also because when I was in seventh grade, I loved this book because I felt like the main character, Vicki Austin, was me. And just, <laughs> it was just my my thoughts and feelings personified in a character, and I'd never felt that about a book before. And reading these books has been like revisiting my 12-year-old self in a way that's <laughs> sort of startling. Um <laughs> But so I recommend Psalm 121, the Yosef Carduner song version of Psalm 121 and the Austin Family Chronicles by Madeline Langle, which includes a book named after a line in Psalm 121. Uh, I have to fact check myself. House Like a Lotus is from the O'Keefe family series, not the Austin family series. Totally. Uh, but there ones. are intersections. Yes. Um, I don't think I've read any of the Austin family series looking at this list, so I'll have to get myself together if you want to acquaint yourself with middle school Zahava I think that's the way to go <laughs> I kind of do um, <laughs> uh, okay I also have a bunch of endorsements we're heavy on endorsements this this month um, so first I want to endorse the song Seder Havoda by Yishai Rebo um, have you heard this Zahava no oh my gosh I am always so skeptical of Jewish music but this song is like incredibly evocative and intense about like the Avodah service, which is usually the part of Yom Kippur where I'm like, this is too weird. I'm going to go outside for a little while. So yeah, it's beautiful. It's just really well done. And there's a video that is like not of him singing. It's like kind of just a tiny bit of animation, 
that's like very, very well done. So Seder Havodah by Yishai Rebo. Um, then, uh, as a day school educated person, I like pretty regularly have my mind totally balloon by biblical criticism. Like, like I just feel like someone went in and scrambled my brain. And that is what happened when I read this article from a few years ago from Haaretz called Origin of Yom Kippur, Not Moses, But a Murder in the Temple. Um, this article makes an incredibly good point that it seems like Yom Kippur was actually like not originally in the text and someone added it in later because there's lots of instances of people like in the Tanakh of people like celebrating Rosh Hashanah and then like preparing for several weeks for um, Sukkot and like no mention is made of Yom Kippur and uh, basically suggests that Yom Kippur happened because someone murdered I either the Kohen Gadol or the Kohen Gadol was the murderer. I cannot remember. I have to go back and look. Um, in the Significant temple. nafkamina, though. What? <laughs> yeah. Significant <laughs> I, difference. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, and, I mean, this the story is, like, kind of complex, and someone should make a Netflix drama about it. Um, but basically, like, someone committed a murder in the temple and then was like, I'm going to need some kind of, like, ritual forgiveness ceremony for this. <laughs> What can we cook up? And then they made this one and then they were like, great, let's make this an annual thing. And basically, like, there's some pretty good evidence of this. And I feel like, oh, my gosh, what does this mean for me? Um, <laughs> now I have to, like, unpack all of my feelings about biblical criticism. So anyways, it's wild. It's a wild ride. If you feel prepared to take it on, I totally recommend this article. Um, more than that, maybe less of a wild ride, but uh, something that I loved. I read this book called Godland by a writer named Liz Lenz, who um, lives in Iowa. I went to college in Iowa. She previously lived in um, Minnesota. I spent a lot of time in Minnesota because it's near where my in-laws live. And she wrote this book about what it's like to be a Christian in the Midwest and particularly to be kind of like a liberal woman Christian who like goes to church and a lot of the churches turn out to be like not really into the ladies. Um, and she just, it's just kind of like an ethnographic study of mid small town Midwestern churches and was like so fascinating to me as someone who grew up in Illinois, went to college in Iowa, my in-laws live in Wisconsin, we spent a lot of time in Minnesota. Like I feel like I know these places so well, but I knew nothing about rural churches and it was so fascinating to me to um to read about it and also just like I always find like reading about Christianity to be so bizarre because like they don't really have that many rituals. Like whenever they have a ritual, they're like, this ritual is so incredible. It's so meaningful. And it's like, right, you only have three. It's like my whole life is just like going from one ritual to the next ritual. Like it's so wild to me that there's like not that much binding. Like the idea that you could go into a church and like they might have like a whole service that would be totally songs that you'd never heard before in your life. <laughs> Whereas like, 
I, you know, I'm going to be in Norway in a couple weeks for Shabbat and like, I will go to shul and like, unless something crazy is going on, like I will open up the CD where I know what is going on when I get to shul. And the idea that that is not the case for Christians is like also so bizarre to me. Like, what is the point of religion if you don't have that kind <laughs> of like thing that makes you feel like you know where you are in space? I don't know. It's really weird. Um, anyways, the book is, I found it to be super fascinating and, um, yeah, it's just like interesting to hear religious women who are not Jewish talk about like what it is like to be religious. So Godland by Liz Lenz, L-E-N. That sounds really cool. I really liked it. Thanks for listening. If you have a minute, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or let us know what you like us to discuss in a future episode. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page. You can find us by searching for Jewish Public Media or you can leave a comment on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a really great way of making sure that we can afford to keep making the show every month and of supporting us. Thank you so much, Zahava. Great to see you tomorrow. I hope you have excellent Chagim. Thank you in absentia to Mimi. Um, and we will see you all next month.